Section 47 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Chapter 16. Dramatic Self-Revelation. Hamlet. In Hamlet, Shakespeare has revealed too much of himself. Frank Harris. As the fame of Shakespeare rests chiefly upon his great achievements in drama, it is to these that the world is bound to look for some special revelation of the author himself. Such a revelation, however, it must be expected, will be in keeping with the character of his genius. Cryptograms and anagrams, though they may play a part, especially the latter, as being a recognized feature of the literature of the times, can only come in as supplementary to something greater the real self-revelation being a dramatic one. The essential objectivity of Shakespeare's work, with its foundations fixed in observation, is assurance enough that his characters would be taken from his own experience of the men and women about him. Mere photographic reproduction, of course, such a genius would not offer us, but actually living men and women, artistically modified and adjusted, to fit them for the part they had to perform, are what we may be sure the plays contain. The fact that these have not been identified before now is no doubt due, in part, to such cunning disguises as we should naturally expect from a mind so profound and complex. The fact, too, that the active life of the reputed author does not fit in with either the time or circumstances of the active life of the actual author has also tended to prevent detection. Another explanation is that Shakespeare probably saw contemporary events and personalities from a standpoint totally different from that taken by Englishmen since his day. If, therefore, the substitution of a new personality as author furnishes a point of view which enables us to identify characters in the plays, it will form a very strong argument that the right man has been discovered. Such faculty of observation as we notice in him, leading him to fix his attention specially upon those whose lives pressed directly upon his own, inevitable in one so sensitive and self-conscious as the sonnets reveal him, is certain to have made his work much more a record of his own personal relationships than has hitherto been supposed. His special domain, moreover, being the study of the human soul, this faculty of observation must have compelled him to subject his own nature to a rigorous examination and analysis. Consequently, when the author is better known, it will doubtless be found that his works are packed with delineations and studies of his own spiritual experiences. The working out of this department of Shakespearean inquiry belongs largely to the future. Something of this kind has, however, already been attempted in a desultory manner in these pages. Our present purpose is somewhat more definite. The long-accepted notion that the author has not given us a representation of himself in his plays breaks down completely, as we have seen, under the view of authorship put forward in this work. Already attention has been drawn to the case of Lord Brown in Love's Labour's Lost, and also to a most striking parallel between Edward de Vere and another of Shakespeare's characters, namely Bertram in All's Well. Bertram, a young lord of ancient lineage, of which he is himself proud, having lost a father of whom he entertained a strong affection, is brought to court by his mother, and there left as a royal ward, to be brought up under royal supervision. As he grows up, he asks for military service, and to be allowed to travel, but is repeatedly refused or put off. At last he goes away without permission. 
before leaving he had been married to a young woman with whom he had been brought up and who had herself been most active in bringing about the marriage matrimonial troubles of which the outstanding feature is a refusal of cohabitation are associated with both his stay abroad and his return home such is the summary of a story we have told in fragments elsewhere and this is as near to biography or autobiography if our theory be accepted as a dramatist ever permitted himself to go the later discovery which we have fortunately been able to incorporate into this work before publication that the central incident of bertram's matrimonial trouble has a place in the records of the earl of oxford leaves no doubt as to his being the prototype of bertram still it is conceivable that a contemporary dramatist knowing de vere's story had utilized part of it in writing the play and therefore if viewed alone is not entitled to be called a dramatic self-revelation properly speaking it is the whole of the dramas that constitutes the full dramatic self-revelation it is therefore as we approach the highest triumphs of his genius which represent the whole that his work becomes a special or synoptic self-revelation this however pertains to the inward or spiritual life rather than to its external forms if then to a spiritual correspondence there is added a marked agreement in external circumstances as evidence of the personal identity of the author such dramatic work becomes specially convincing the question therefore resolves itself into this what play of shakespeare's holds such preeminence that we are entitled to regard it as a work of special self-revelation and how far do its inner spiritual facts and the outward forms in which they are clothed warrant the assumption that they constitute a work of self-revelation on the part of edward de vere on the first point the choice of play there is fortunately no need for the exercise of our own individual judgment nor any uncertainty as to the social verdict for the world at large has long since proclaimed the play of hamlet as the great tour de force of this master dramatist the comedy of love's labours lost undoubtedly occupies a unique position amongst the lighter plays it is usually accorded priority in time it bears unmistakable evidence of the most painstaking labour and it was the first to be published under the pseudonym of shakespeare the correspondence of its central figure baron with the earl of oxford has therefore a special value particularly if taken as supplementary to the play of hamlet the central figure in the latter play occupies however a most exceptional position in relation to the work in which he appears and therefore stands out as the supreme dramatic creation of the artist the play of hamlet with hamlet left out has become a proverbial expression for the very extreme of deprivation and sir sidney lee assures us that the total length of hamlet's speeches far exceeds that of those allotted by shakespeare to any others of his characters these again have so passed into common currency as to justify the well-worn joke about the play being full of quotations the play and the character of hamlet may therefore be accepted as being in a peculiar sense the dramatic self-revelation of the author if such a revelation exists anywhere great is the mass of printed matter which this particular creation has already called forth probably exceeding in amount what has been written about any other literary work of similar dimensions outside the bible more is certain to appear if we succeed in making good our chief claim the burden of much that has appeared is to the effect that in hamlet the poet meant to give us the picture of a human soul struggling with destiny we venture to say that he meant nothing so philosophically abstract but that what he was actually striving most consciously and earnestly to do was to represent himself and he like every other human being born into this world 
who succeeds in keeping his soul alive was indeed a soul struggling most tragically with destiny refusing to be swept along passively by the currents into which his life was plunged or to surrender to the adverse forces within himself this is certainly the picture which stands out from that self-presentation of the poet contained in his sonnets and the fact that the character of hamlet has been defined in terms that bring it into direct accord with that poetic self-revelation is one more proof that the play is intended to be a special and direct dramatic self-revelation it is this personal factor doubtless that has given to the drama that intense vitality and realism which makes its words and phrases grip the mind becoming thus the instruments by which mankind at large have found new means of self-expression it is this fact of hamlet representing the dramatist himself which also makes him stand out from all shakespeare's characters as an interpreter of the motives of human action into no other character has the author put in equal measure his own distinctive powers of insight into human nature whilst other personages in the play are trying to penetrate his mystery to discover his purposes and to read his mind we find hamlet confusing them all and meanwhile reading them like an open book i set you up a glass where you may see the inmost part of you he says to his mother all that quickness of the senses which marks alike the work of de vere and shakespeare manifests itself in the person of hamlet he misses nothing and everything he sees or hears opens some new avenue to the inmost parts of those about him a man like this is almost foredoomed to a tragic loneliness for even such a love as he shows toward ophelia and she toward him cannot blind him to her want of an honesty in her dealings he sees much of which he may not speak in the play he can express himself in soliloquy or cunningly reveal to the audience what is hidden from the other personages in the drama but in real life he would become a man of large mental reserves and an enforced secretiveness something of this is certainly noticeable in the slight records we have of de vere a trait which even burleigh found disconcerting having decided that hamlet is the play which by its preeminence is entitled to be regarded as shakespeare's special work of self-delineation the next part of our problem is to see whether the revelation it contains has a marked and peculiar applicability to the case of edward de vere in examining the work from this point of view it must be borne in mind that shakespeare's plots are seldom pure inventions the dramatist is obliged therefore to conform in certain essentials to the original and it is to what he works into this and the special adaptations he makes that we must look for his self-revelation rather than to the central idea of the plot itself naturally however his own definite purposes must influence his choice of plot though it must also be borne in mind that self-disguise is one of his purposes as well as self-expression in testing the parallel we must substitute first of all the royal court of england for the royal court of denmark for hamlet prince of denmark at the danish court we shall then have to substitute edward earl of oxford at the court of england oxford of course was not a prince of royal blood but then there were no princes of royal blood at the english court and the earl of oxford in his younger days was the nearest approach to a royal prince that the english court could boast in the matter of ancient lineage and territorial establishment a descendant of aubrey de vere had nothing to fear in comparison with a descendant of owen tudor and when it is remembered that noblemen of inferior standing to oxford were in those days contemplating the possibility of sharing royal honours either with elizabeth or her possible successor the queen of scotland for the dramatist to represent himself as a royal prince 
was no extravagant self-aggrandizement. With the substitution we have recommended in mind, let the reader turn again to Hamlet, and read the play with the attention fixed, not upon the plot, but upon the characterization. If he does not experience all the elation which comes with new illumination, if he does not feel that every line of Hamlet's speeches pulsates with the heart and spirit of Oxford, either we have failed to represent accurately, or he has failed to appreciate, the character and circumstances of this remarkable and unfortunate nobleman. We shall endeavour to indicate elements of parallelism and coincidence between the two, but nothing can take the place of an attentive and discriminating reading of the play itself. As then we have elsewhere urged that one of the most convincing proofs is to read the sonnets, so now we would also urge those who are interested to read Hamlet. Already in tracing illustrations of the life and circumstances of De Vere in Shakespeare's works, we have frequently had to call attention to analogies with Hamlet, extending to details of private relationships. We may therefore shorten our present task by asking the reader to revert to those chapters dealing with the early and middle periods of Oxford's life. Following upon the consideration of his social rank comes the central fact of Hamlet's working out a secret purpose under a mask of eccentricity amounting almost to feigned madness. To have feigned complete madness would not have allowed him to accomplish his purpose, and therefore he assumes just sufficient insanity as is necessary to bewilder those whom he wishes to circumvent, and who are trying to circumvent him. It is a match of wits in which the ablest mind wins by allowing his inferior antagonists to suppose him mentally deficient. Now the records we have of Oxford represent his eccentricity of his early and middle period as being of an extreme character, and if we suppose him to be Shakespeare, we can quite believe that his own secret purposes were being pursued partly under a mask of vagary. It is to be observed how frequently Hamlet employs this particular stratagem in resisting molestation, especially from those who are trying to penetrate his secrets. This appears in his dealings with Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, Polonius, and Ophelia. Now this resistance to interference stands out clearly at the time when Oxford, having returned from abroad, is reported to have behaved in a strange manner toward Lady Oxford, for in addition to the taciturnity which he adopted, and which one writer calls sulkiness, he says in the letter quoted in our Othello argument, neither will he weary his life any more with such troubles and molestations as he has endured. Compare especially with the spirit expressed in this the interesting scene in which Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are trying to probe and play upon Hamlet. Act three, scene two. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. Blood, do you think I am easier to be played on than a pipe? Though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. That Hamlet is Shakespeare's representation of himself receives confirmation from another characteristic which the letter shares with Oxford. That remarkable combination of tragedy with comedy, in the ordinary sense of these words which we find in Shakespeare, attains its highest development in the play of Hamlet. The only possible competitor is the Merchant of Venice. In the latter we have a comedy which may at any moment resolve itself into an appalling tragedy. In Hamlet we have a tragedy which, at parts, runs perilously near comedy, and may at any moment break up in absolute farce. Even in times of melancholy, and in the very thick of disaster, the wit and subtle fun of the hero never desert him. Over his life there hangs a dark shadow. Impotence, failure, and despondency dog his steps, yet when things are at their worst he turns rapidly upon his butts, 
teasing and confusing them with an evident enjoyment of the intellectual fun of the business the play of hamlet which may therefore in this particular be taken as a compendium of shakespeare's dramas as a whole is unquestionably symptomatic of the general mental constitution and career of the earl of oxford the social position and general character of the hero of this play having lent support to the theory that its author was edward de vere we shall find additional and even more surprising corroboration when we turn to the details of personal relationships the driving force in the play of hamlet is of course father worship the love and admiration of a son for a dead father who had borne himself in a manner worthy of his exalted station such affection and respect is the spontaneous source of ancestor worship although therefore we are not told that father worship was a marked trait in edward de vere we have abundant justification for such an assumption and might indeed infer it from the fact that ancestor worship was a pronounced feature of his character when however we turn to hamlet's relationship to his surviving parent we are met with a totally different picture grief and disappointment at his mother's conduct lie at the root of all the tragedy of his life with a capacity for intense affection such as we have already pointed out in shakespeare and in de vere hamlet was incapable of any real trust in womanhood his faith had been shattered by the inconstancy of his own mother this curious combination of intense affectionateness with weakness of faith in women is therefore characteristic of all three shakespeare in his sonnets hamlet and de vere end of section forty seven